Today's the 4th of July. It's a pretty important day in the history of our nation. Like many of you, later today I'll be at a barbecue. I'll be out on the water, I'll watch fireworks, and I'll be searching in my closet for something red, white, and blue uh, to wear for the day just to be patriotic. Uh, like many of you, I thank God for the blessing of being an American. Uh, I love us at our best. But particularly on 4th of July, I feel like there's something amiss. And people older than I am tell me that they don't remember the country being this divided since the Vietnam War. It doesn't seem to matter what your political persuasion is or what your take on the problems or the cause of them that face us as a nation. Things just don't feel right. The question for us, though, as the people of God is, what should we do about it? So let's take a look at an Old Testament verse this morning to see if it'll give us some insights in how we can move forward. So we're going to be in the book of Chronicles, which is in the first part of the Old Testament. And the two books of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, are kind of like the high points of the history of Israel. The big stuff is all recorded in there. So we're going to look at what for many of you will be a familiar passage in Second Chronicles 7.14. It says, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. As always, let's, let's look at the context. In the Old Testament particularly, uh, and this comes up even, even more in the book of Deuteronomy, there is this cause and effect thing. If you follow God, the effect will be blessing. If you go your own way, if you do what the Bible calls sinning, then there's going to be what the Bible calls curses. Things, things will not go well for you. Uh, we, we might be more comfortable thinking of it in terms of there's consequences to our actions. And if we make good choices, generally the consequences will be good. If we are connected to God and walking his way, we'll experience God's blessing. And if we're making poor choices, well, we'll experience those consequences too. So that's just the underlying, you know, worldview that happens. And I think for many of us, that's, that's still true. Uh, and th this takes a, a passage where Solomon has just dedicated a huge temple to God. And this has been anticipated for years and decades. Uh, so it is finally built and it's dedicated. And there's this huge prayer and they're all gathered there to worship. And why? Why is the temple important? The temple is important because the temple is where God meets with people. Uh, the temple is important because it's the physical reminder of God's presence with his people. I mean, you stand in Jerusalem and go, where is God? And people can point. God's there. You know, here we are. Where is God? God is in the midst of us. It's a visible reminder that God enters into our world, that God invites us into relationships. That's what the temple reminds us of. And of course, in New Testament times, I mean, Jesus is God's temple. And it's the same thing. It reminds us that God is present with us. God enters our world. That's the core of the biblical message. The creating, sustaining, redeeming God of the universe says, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to be with you. 
And that's the key to understanding this whole passage. When you're experiencing the consequences of your bad choices, when there's sin, where there's confusion, when there's division in the nation, what should you do? And the answer is that God's people turn to him. So the scripture, if my people who are called by my name, that's us. This is not language for the ungodly. So in the midst of chaos, in the midst of sin, in the midst of experiencing bad consequences, it's not addressed to, well, if only the ungodly would cease being ungodly, then things would be better. It's not addressed to them. It's addressed to us. We are the people who are called by God's name. This is asking all this chaos, all of this is going on, what if the people of God truly lived as the people of God? And I think that's really interesting. It isn't good enough to go, all of this, that's their fault. Judgment, reflection, always begins with God's people and at God's house. When things are awry, the people of God don't start pointing fingers at others. They first examine their own hearts, their own motivations, their behaviors. And why would that be? Because in some ways it seems really obvious that the problems of the world are created by the ungodly, right? Let's look at it this way. In New Testament language, the people of God are salt. The people of God are light. And if there's no salt and only darkness, is it possible that the people of God have not fulfilled their calling. And that's the place to start. God's people are called to be living reminders of his goodness and grace, to be witnesses of the glory of living and following Jesus and being in relationship to God. Is it possible, Chronicles brings up for us, is it possible that our country is in the state that it is in, at least in part, because God's people have not adequately reflected Jesus? That's always the first question for them and for us. Am I accurately reflecting Jesus to others? Are my priorities lined up with Jesus's priorities? Is Jesus the first priority in my life or am I just trying to fit him in among all of the other things? That's the place to start. If my people who are called by my name Called by my name is a Hebrew expression that means ownership. We belong to God. He's got a claim on our lives. And his first claim is for us to be faithful to the promises we've made to us. So when there's trouble in the land, the solution starts with us, not with them. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, well, that's a terrible idea. And I'm quite sure that there is an error in translation. I'm quite sure that it was meant to read, if my people who are called by my name will listen to what Michael has to say, all this could be fixed. I'm quite sure that's how it was supposed to go. What, what does humble yourself mean? What does it mean to humble ourselves? Generally, we think of it as being the opposite of proud or maybe debasing ourselves. Maybe it's a negative type thing. So let me jump to the New Testament for a moment. You don't have to follow me here. Just trust me on this. Um, in, in James chapter 4, James brings these two terms together, and I think in a helpful way. The, the book of James is written in a time of turmoil. 
The Roman occupation is grinding on. People hate the government. The church has splintered into factions, basically disagreeing about how to relate to the government. Some people want to overthrow it, some people want to go along to get along, and there are these huge fault lines that have developed in the church. And in the midst of that, James writes, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So it's this idea about that humility is when we take our priorities, our prerogatives, our history, our baggage, our understanding, and submit all of those things to God. Come near to God, repent from the other things, and humble ourselves. That's kind of the picture. We change from what our understanding was to God's understanding. We have all these opinions, all this history, all this baggage, all these thoughts, and we submit those to God and get ready to reflect his perspectives. C.S. Lewis said it another way, which I like. He says that humility is not um, thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less and God more. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. There's this intentional tie between humility and prayer. When we've submitted ourselves to God, when we pray according to his will and not ours, that's when prayer is effective. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, ask whatever you will and God will grant it. Because otherwise, if we haven't submitted ourselves to God, if we aren't praying according to God's will, our prayer is just a wish list for what we want. One of my uh, Old Testament professors about this passage said this, such a prayer, the one that is, is filled with humility and submission to God, such a prayer opens up our heart and soul to God, allowing him to penetrate to the core of our will and put his will there instead. Humility and prayer go hand in hand. On the other hand, looking at prayer, sometimes to pray feels like to do nothing. You know, I ask somebody something, what are you going to do about this? Well, we're going to pray. And I want to go, and? Because it feels like you're not doing anything. Prayer is always an action verb. I'm not saying that you shouldn't pray, you absolutely should pray. Um, but prayer is always an action verb. Sometimes prayer requires us to wait on the Lord, but it always ends up producing action. It could produce more trust. It could produce more understanding and a softening of our hearts. It could produce firming up our resolve to be more like Jesus. It could produce action on our part in response to the prayer. In other words, God might use us to answer our own prayer. If we humble ourselves and pray, God answers. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I put those two together. There's a problem. We need to recognize that we believe that we belong to God. We need to humble ourselves and pray and then seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I put those together because it's a picture of what repentance is. Repentance is always turning from one thing 
to another thing. Repentance is just is never just stopping something. It, it's something you have to exchange it for something. And so this is a call to turn towards God and to turn away from whatever was taking our attention off of these things. We turn from something to something else. We seek God's face and we turn from our wicked ways. That's what repentance is. Well, what could we need to repent of? Well, it could be any number of the sins that we can easily think of. I mean, I'll readily confess that sometimes I get irritated when I shouldn't. It could also be any number of sins that we might not want to think of, that we might not even recognize could be sins. Because I also might need to confess that if you look at the desires of my heart, they might not be distinguishable from my neighbors who has no relationship to Jesus at all. Or that my views might just be my own personal preferences and not a reflection of the good news of the gospel. And that might be harder to acknowledge. That might be harder to repent of than getting irritated at people sometimes. God has us at this place where we have to ask, have I turned away from God in any area of my life? And has that contributed to the problem? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, oh, that's an important then. All of those other things have to happen first. Then I will hear from heaven. Here's incredible great news. God hears. God listens. The incredible reminder of Solomon building his temple, of Jesus walking among us, God is near. God will listen. It is such a gift to us. I mean, I think on a practical level of how frequently many of us don't feel like anybody hears what we're saying, that nobody actually listens to us. This is the promise that God will hear. God will hear and forgive their sins. That's more good news. A song that we regularly sing says, where sin runs deep, your grace is more. And that's the promise of God here. Wherever there's sin, when people turn to him, God will forgive it. But remember our context. We're talking about that we are God's people. We're talking about God's people and their relationship to their country. And we're reminded that judgment begins in God's house, that we have to own our own stuff and understand that we may have contributed to the problems that face us. If you look around, respect for Christians is at an all-time low. The gospel is not seen as good news or as a viable way forward for people, not just by society in general, but by many of our children and our grandchildren. We're not seen as loving and grace-filled as much as we are seen as being hateful and narrow and judgmental. And there are a lot of things that Christians have been called over the years, some rightly and some not so rightly, but hateful should never be one of them. But God's plan to redeem the world, God's plan to fix broken things is still the local church. And this passage reminds us that it's never too late to get on board with God. That when we turn back to God, God will always hear and God will always heal. 
I will heal their land. How will that happen, I wonder? It could be some supernatural uh, intervention. Absolutely, sure, why not? God raises leaders up, God puts them down again. But I have a sense that the way that God is going to uh, heal, forgive us our sins and heal our land is through us, his people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. God chooses to heal the land after God's people have returned to him, after they have confessed their sins, after they have gotten their hearts right, after they have faced him. God will use us to be healing agents in our church, in our community, and in our land as we daily submit ourselves to his plan and to his will for the good of the kingdom and for the good of the nation. So let me ask you three questions. What is a piece of evidence in your life that you belong to God? Number two, what is one thing that you can begin to do to more accurately represent Jesus in your sphere of influence? And number three, which is the greater growth area for you, humility or repentance?